regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Well, it's been less than a week since we recorded the last episode, and a lot seems to have happened. Yes, indeed. Our friend Ollie has got a scenario out, hasn't he? Issue 8 of the Undercroft magazine has just come out. And this is a Lamentations of the Flame Princess fanzine, and Issue 8 is entirely devoted to Ollie Palmer's fine scenario, Something Stinks in Stilton. More cheese than you can shake a stick at. Have you played it? <laughs> yeah, I, I played it with Ollie, oh gosh, uh, last year sometime. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think we played in the same session, didn't we? Yes, yes, we did. Because yeah, I think there was the, us two who the experience, or at least the ones that have experienced Lamentations before and hanging back while everyone else went forward first. <laughs> <laughs> Cannon fodder, yeah. Good tactic. Yeah. Well, I've yet to play it, so I'm looking forward to that. So I'll buy a copy, but I'll hopefully maybe somebody will run it. I can see that being a, uh, the game Scott would quite like to run. Right. Definitely, definitely up his alley. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's got enough body horror in it to suit me. <laughs> and talking of uh, projects, how's your Cold War Cthulhu book going, Scott? Uh, yeah, it's almost there. We're just putting the finishing touches to the core book at the moment, uh, and things are speeding along nicely. And the other big thing that's just happened is we have just unboxed and played with our fancy new toys. You're going to be making the Yeti jealous, you realise. I, I know. I feel, I feel guilty looking at the Yeti and saying this, but we've just played with the new microphones, and they are lovely. If you want to imagine Scott as a little kid on Christmas morning, that's what it was like. <laughs> it was. I, it, the, the big box had been sat on my floor since yesterday, and I hadn't opened it yet, and I was thinking, I'll open it sometime. But no, as soon as Scott turns up, he's ripping the packaging off and pulling out the microphones and plugging them in. Oh, yes. And, and then turning into a stand-up comedian as he's holding there quite nonchalantly with the mic. <laughs> we've decided not to use them for this episode because, well, we've just taken them out of the box and we want to make absolutely sure we know what we're doing before we fuck up an entire episode. Well, this week we're back for our part two discussion of The Colour Out of Space. Yeah. You have been rightly mocked for your attitudes on this on, on Google Plus so far. What? No, I just think people are wrong. <laughs> well, people are wrong, but you know. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, th- I, I think in this case it's person is wrong, not people are wrong. <laughs> last time we talked about the story itself. This time we're going to be looking at adaptations of The Colour Out of Space, of which there are many, and we'll be talking about why there are so many as well and also what you can take from Colour Out of Space to put into your games. And the answer is lots. But before that... And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Our Lovecraftian word of the week this week is tainted. An adjective um, affected or associated with something undesirable or reprehensible. Two, um, exposed to an infectious agent, toxin or, or undesirable substance. 
or subjected to decay or putrefaction. Again, it's not perhaps as florid as some of Lovecraft's language, but I think, again, it's a fairly quintessentially Lovecraftian word in that it encompasses a lot of his ideas. I mean, the, the, you know, this idea that we've, we've touched on before with the corrupting nature of the mythos, and particularly in The Colour Out of Space, I, this is a story about a tainted environment. Lovecraft only used the word tainted a dozen times in his fiction, so it's it's not one of his favourite adjectives, but like I say, I think it's, it is still a very Lovecraftian one. Hmm. So the, the word immediately, rather than colour out of space, it always evokes to me like the Innsmouth taint. Of, of course, taint as a word now conjures up other images thanks to Urban Dictionary, but let's, let's move on from that. Shall we take a look at how Lovecraft used the word tainted in his work? From the Call of Cthulhu. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poison city of madness. And from Hypnos. Just what happened is unknown. For not only was my own mind unseated by the strange and hideous thing, but others were tainted with a forgetfulness which can mean nothing if not madness. And appropriately enough, from the colour out of space. He and the boys continued to use the tainted supply, drinking it as listlessly and mechanically as they ate their meagre and ill-cooked meals, and did their thankless and monotonous chores through the aimless days. Let's start off by looking at the various ways that the colour out of space has turned up in other media. Looking at adaptations of the colour out of space, film adaptations in particular, it occurs to me that this has got to be one of the most filmed of Lovecraft stories. There are an awful lot of Lovecraft adaptations out there, and you know, a lot of them are short films and amateur films, but this is unusual in that there are at least four feature film adaptations of it. There's quite a lot going on in this story which lends itself to being taken from the story. I mean, there's, there's some of these films that don't feature the meteorite, for example. They just take elements of it. And this whole thing about the fruits and food being contaminated, the water being contaminated, those elements leading to people acting strangely, those are things that you can kind of easily kind of unplug and put into something else. You know, that, that, that's perhaps um, how it lends itself to being filmed so easily. In a lot of ways, it's probably actually one of the more approachable of Lovecraft stories from a filmmaker's point of view, in that it is a fairly straightforward story. It's a family story. It may be possibly his weirdest, most cosmic story. But at the same time, this is as traditional a gothic story as he probably ever wrote. Chronologically speaking, the first film adaptation is a film that I picked up in a um, Midnight Movies double bill DVD collection that came along with the Dunwich Horror. And Another classic. Appropriately yeah. <laughs> enough, because they both share the same director. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do remember this one as being the, definitely the worst of the two in that box set. <laughs> die, monster, die! With the exclamation mark. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, does, it does have other names, though. I mean, Die, Monster, Die is by far the best title it's been given. But it's also known as the Monster of Terror, or sorry, Monster of Terror, and the House at the End of the World. 
Or at least IMDB says it's called The House at the End of the World. I've never actually seen it released under that name, but why would they lie to me? Made in 1965, it stars Boris Karloff and is directed by Daniel Harler, who used to work with Roger Corman, and it very much reflects that kind of work. Set in, a, in an English village, and this chap turns up and he's looking for the, uh, the Whitley family, isn't he? which is a, obviously a play on the Waitley family. And everybody's like, oh, no, you don't want to be going there. Are you mad? We're not, we're not taking you there. Or they just kind of turn and, and flee. Uh, but of course, he makes his way up to the Whitley farm and everything's, yeah, as you'd expect, everything's wrong. And didn't it remind you of Dr. Scott from the Rocky Horror Picture <laughs> Show? Oh, because the doctor's in a wheelchair, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, uh, Boris Karloff's yeah. kind of wheeling himself in this, around in this uh, wheelchair. <laughs> it's kind of like a throne with wheels. <laughs> Looking, yeah. just looking decidedly unhappy throughout most of the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Was that acting or was that just. <laughs> <laughs> that was a... Has my career come to this? <laughs> oh, a similar reaction that Christopher Lee had. Wasn't it one of the Dracula films he had where he refused to speak a line because the script was so bad? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this one features the terrible vegetables that have been grown in Boris Karloff's greenhouse. It heavily features the insane wife. A glowing Boris Karloff at the end. I remember oh, that. yes, yes. The glowing Boris Karloff shouldn't be missed. Um, <laughs> I don't think we have a well, I don't as I recall. One. We have bits of stone, which are kind yeah, of... Yeah, um, they're, they're in the greenhouse. The lead actor digs it up, and he's looking at it with the, with the heroine, and he says, It looks like some kind of element. <laughs> <laughs> I do science, I do. <laughs> Yes. I, I, that, this is particularly ironic considering the amount of gratuitous scientific detail Lovecraft put yes. into the story that by the time it hits the screen it's reduced to this. With a nod to Blackadder, he could well have said that looks like purest green. <laughs> but sadly he didn't. A few years too early. There was a scene in the greenhouse which brought to mind Day of the Triffids when one of the plants reaches out and grabs the heroine. And I kind of thought, oh, actually, there are, there are quite a few parallels with Day of the Triffids. We get those meteors coming down. I mean, they, they don't bring the Triffids, but they're a big force in, in Day of the Triffids' story, in, you know, in blinding yeah. everybody. Yet another thing where meteors are an important element yeah. in the story. Yes, that's true. And wasn't there a, one of the Tom Baker Doctor Who episodes, Seeds of Death? Seeds of Doom. Seeds, Seeds of Doom, Doom. yeah. Seeds of Death was a Patrick Troughton one. Yeah, certainly along those lines. Indeed. Didn't they, I mean, it's... God, it's 30 years since I've seen that, but didn't that involve kind of something nasty goings on in, well, a very fancy greenhouse? The two, yeah, it, it's a six-part story that's very much divided into two, almost like two stories with um, three parts each. The crinoids are a race that throw their seas through space, but they, to quote Baker, they always travel in pairs like policemen. <laughs> they land in Antarctica. So again, already a nice Lovecraftian. So, did they land on a comet or something, or are they just flying through space? Seeds flying they, through space. They, they're just the seeds that fly through space. Well, they land. They land in fairly similar up. to um, Color Out of Space. Then, yeah, it, potentially. Well, it seemed to be almost a mashup of the Color Out of Space and the Quatermass experiment. Mm. Yeah, it, it probably has more in line with um, the latter, because it is very much seen as an organic element. It is a plant that grows, and it, if anything, it almost shows a bit of parallel with Die Monster Die that it infects people and then uses them as the or the base for which it grows into something more monstrous. And you've just made me realise, of course, the other great film along these lines, Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, Seymour, feed me! Because, <laughs> if I remember correctly, Audrey too turned up on a meteorite, didn't she, in the first place? 
Well, jumping forward 22 years, we then have a slice of cheesy 80s horror in the form of The Curse. Won't make Paul happy, we skipped the 70s entirely. I yeah, know. what's going on? It has a great start though. It's just a, an urban scene and then we skip to, to six months earlier for the rest of the story. But the urban scene is after the reservoir's been built, I think. So um, there's this guy in his house. The police come in and, and take him in and as they drive in through the streets, he's screaming about the water and he's, he's kind of partially mutated. As they're driving along in the police car, he's looking out the window and there's all these people washing their cars and drinking the water and, <laughs> uh, and he's trying to scream at them to stop and then it cuts to and six months earlier. So, so basically you're saying it starts with the end of Invasion of the Body Snatches. Yeah, pretty much, I think. This features a young Will Wheaton. Fresh from the success of Stand By Me, going from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> yes. He gives a pretty good performance in this. I think um, he's, he's one of the stronger elements, I would say. Uh, along with his sister Amy, who gets brutally attacked by crazy chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, to be fair, I, chickens can be pretty scary. Reading on IMDb, I found out that the, uh, the producer says the film was inspired by the social crisis of the farmers during the Ronald Reagan administration in the United States during the 1980s. And I still buy that more than the bloody Serbian film being a political <laughs> allegory or whatever rubbish. Uh, and, and another co-producer, Lucio Fulci, is, is involved in it. All right. Attributed as Louis Fulci. <laughs> there you go. Okay. This one features rural types at a farmhouse, and there's kind of rows and disagreements among the family. And then, of course, that all escalates as, uh, as they start drinking the infected water. From what is the worst special effects, they go out. There's a, there's a massive crash and fire and stuff as this meteorite lands. Cut to next morning. And there's this perfect field with this massive, clearly mechanically dug trench <laughs> that is nice and straight-sided with a sort of nice flat end and then sat nice and sort of squarely in the end of it. It's just this massive, about 12-foot round globe. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. The mother progressively becomes more and more insane until in one of the final scenes, she actually becomes so insane that when she addresses her son, Zach... She calls him Will. Will, eat your eggs! <laughs> <laughs> Attention to detail there. <laughs> oh. IMDB picked that up for me, but I did, yeah, then I was watching it. I was like, oh yeah, she did. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Maybe, maybe this is like a manifestation of her insanity, though. Yeah, she became she, so insane, she thought she was an actress in the real world, talking break, to an actor. Breaking yeah. the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a lot of fun. I mean, it's got all those things, about, like I said, about the fruit and the uh, the water and the madness and the, the running around killing each other. and the... But The Curse was enough of a success that it's, it spawned a line of sequels. I've uh, never heard of it or the sequels. Mm. <laughs> I want to see the second one. Apparently the sequels <laughs> have got nothing to do with the first film. I, looking at IMDb, I've, I've not seen The Curse too, but apparently it was a completely unrelated film, but when The Curse was a minor financial success, they just called it The Curse too. Seeing it again today, it's hard to imagine how it was a financial <laughs> success. I guess things were different in 1987. <laughs> as bad as it was, I, the write-up of The Curse too on IMDb which I believe is rated at something like two stars. The summary has just about sold me on seeing it, and I just have to read this out. 
After a young man is bitten on the hand by a radioactive snake, his hand changes into a lethal snake head, which attacks everyone he comes into contact with. Also, his body becomes filled with snakes. Now he must prevent himself from hurting others. That I'm sold you on that, either. That sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> it does sound pretty good. When I read that, it cut off about halfway through. So I thought that sounded, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. His hand turns into a snake. I didn't get the bit about him being filled with snakes. Is not the hand of the snake enough? Yeah, he's now a snake pinata. I see, that puts me in mind of the Call of Cthulhu spell, Hands of Calubra. Which featured in our Tatters of the King game, Matt. Yeah, the recall. bloody thing nearly did a TPK on us. I very much remember that. Yeah, the cultist, if he's got hands of Calubra, he can cast it and his arms turn into poisonous snakes. They attacks people with. How I cool s- is that? I seem to remember there's a spell a bit like that in Dread, the first book of Pandemonium as well. There, there's certainly the even more memorable version where, which, which actually sort of ties in with the other aspect of this, where your innards turn into lampreys and then burst out of your torso and go around devouring everyone. So, yeah, obviously that's where Raphael got it from. Huge fan of The Curse too. Moving on to 2008, we have the Italian film from prolific Lovecraftian director Ivan Zukon, uh, Colour from the Dark. It's got all the elements you'd expect, the tainted water in the well, the woman who goes a bit mad, the priest who comes around and gets stabbed through the eye with a crucifix. Um, oh, sorry, yeah. no, the other thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it kind of turns into The Exorcist at a few points here. You know, there's a bit more nudity than uh, Lovecraft might have wanted. No meteorite. There is the thing in the well. It is infecting the water. It's set in Italy in 1943. A couple of the actors seem to be Italian. And then there's a guy by the name of Jerry Shanahan, who plays a character called Giovanni in a broad Irish accent. But, I mean, this is nothing new for Italian horror cinema. A lot of the Italian films, the you know, the classic Italian horror films of the 70s and the 80s, have got actors from all over the world, all speaking their own languages, and the idea was always that they'd then be dubbed over into whatever you know, was released locally. It means you get some really bizarre mixes sometimes. And ah, that, that, that makes sense then, yes, because it was a quite... I mean, I'm not great on accents, on identifying accents or, or doing them, but... Um, sorry to, you know... We, we can all attest to that. I, I, could just, I could just picture you sat there after ten minutes going, that guy's not Italian. That's pretty much how it was, Matt. Yeah, yeah. And the escaped Jewish lady from next door um, who gets hunt, hunted down and, and shot because, you know, the plot does vary slightly from the original story. Um, yeah, it's there, there are parts in German. And and, and there's the, the girl with the creepy doll. That's right. Quite, that's quite cool. I've seen a couple of Zukon's other films, and they do seem to have the same sort of kitchen sink approach to horror. They're perhaps not the most deft or skillful horror films I've seen, but you certainly can't deny the enthusiasm behind them. If you're a horror fan, I think there's enough in there to keep you... You're not going to get bored. I think you're going to be entertained, yeah. um, oh, both yeah. with this and with The Curse. I think between us, we're probably agreed that the most recent adaptation is by far the best, Defaba from 2010. Probably the most faithful adaptation for a start, despite the fact that it's set in Germany before and after the Second World War. It certainly captures most of the elements of the original story, and certainly a lot of the atmosphere of it. It's a very creepy film. It captures the poignancy, I think, of the story as well, of this, this family just being destroyed by this thing they'll never understand. One thing that makes it 
stand out is the fact that the whole thing is shot in black and white. And this, this is a very, very clever way of handling the colour, except the only element of it that's not in black and white is the colour itself, which is portrayed as, as purple, a fairly lurid, sort of mauvish purple in the film. But the fact that the rest of the film is in black and white means that this does stand out as something intrusive and alien and quite visually shocking. And it gives a good rationale as to why the characters on screen react so strongly as they do to it, because we've invested in their black and white world for a while before we see the colour out of space yeah. and it's like what the hell is that i think i spotted the first instance where it where it appears it's on the leaf the close up of the leaf that they yeah. give yeah and very it, slight isn't it yeah, i think in fact it's almost a taint oh yeah. nicely Good. done <laughs> this thing's through an interview with the director juan vu he talked about it being written as a 60 minute script but then it turned into a 90-minute film, and watching it, I can kind of see that. Because there are times when, is this just going a bit slowly, or is this kind of a bit European art house of us kind of seeing a long, slow shot of somebody looking out the window with nothing actually happening? You see, that's Which, one of the things... I know you're going to yeah. love that, Scott, because you love that shit. <laughs> I do. That, that, was, that was one of the things that absolutely sold me on this. It takes its time. It does have those slow, languid shots. It builds mood. It builds atmosphere. I, I know there weren't enough car chases for you, Paul. <laughs> if I were editing it, it would have been an hour long or four or five minutes. It was good. No, I mean, I did enjoy it. It was good. I'd have just speed it up a bit more. Let's just fuck off. <laughs> That's one thing the new mics won't pick up. <laughs> well, we hope for hope not. But I, I, I know especially one of those long scenes uh, definitely worked for me because I'd watched the film while I was going through the multiple attempts at trying to read the bloody story. And after giving up falling asleep five times by the point that they found the meteorite, the first time I came across the image of the snow-covered hills and just this patch that's not really got much snow on it at all. I thought that worked really well when I didn't know that that was going to be happening in the film because I didn't notice it for until maybe like a minute into the shot thinking, hang on a minute, that area's got a bit more clear than the rest of it. I didn't really notice that, actually. There you go, you, you see? Subtlety! Did you notice this? No. <laughs> no. Are you sure you didn't imagine this? Matt? No, positive, because then they, they do a close-up shot of the snow melting on the um, oh, branches. Right. Oh, nice. okay. Yeah. Right, right. Well, yeah, yeah. See, there's multiple reasons I like this. <laughs> As we mentioned, this isn't exactly a faithful adaptation in that it's set in Germany and it's got this framing sequence with an, a missing American serviceman who has gone back to Germany uh, where he served in the war and his son has come looking for him and speaks to sort of the Amy Pierce type character in this who's called Armin and learns of the story that way. But it's still basically the same story. I, one thing that, that occurred to me as I was watching this was an interesting aspect of setting it in this period because the run-up to it is obviously set during the run-up to the Second World War and while not a lot of direct references made to that it sort of struck me that there's almost a parallel between the rise of Nazism in Germany and the colour out of space there in that you've got this thing that comes in and apparently rejuvenates the land you know, they, everything's looking a lot more succulent and and stronger everything's growing but inside it's it's rotten it's decaying and ultimately just leads to madness and death and i just wondered whether that was a deliberate choice setting it in that period that it, yeah that, that, that it was a sort of thematic parallel according to his imdb biography juan vu he's done some game related material as well hmm. 
Apparently he created a film called Damnatus based on the highly successful sci-fi tabletop game Warhammer 40,000. But it wasn't official. And whilst it attracted quite a sort of fan following, it um, Games Workshop lent on him and that's no more. In oh. the grim darkness there is um, of the far future, there is only copyright infringement. At the moment, he's working on a Dreamlands-based film, I think appropriately called Dreamlands. Yeah. I've, uh, I've seen the opening kind of teaser trailer stroke segment that he released for that a little while ago. Boy, that looks good. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, he's got a six-minute teaser on his website at the moment. And, yeah, he's got a fairly slow build-up and then some really spectacular special effects shots. He's kick-started some of that, right? Or Indiegogo? Yeah. Indiegogo, it must be at least one or two years ago now. Well, hes I believe he's done two campaigns through Indiegogo to raise money, and he's still raising money through the website. So if you want to contribute to this, I mean, go along, and, and there's still donation options on there. Mm. But, yeah, take a look at that film, and, uh, yeah, if, if this thing gets completed, I think it's got to be, you know, one of the, the, the best Lovecraftian films mm-hmm. around. And we will actually be talking to Wan Vu later in this episode. Apparently there's another adaptation of The Colour Out of Space that's apparently being done by Richard Stanley, who, you know, horror and science fiction fans may remember as the director of Hardware and Dust Devils from the 1980s, and, uh, you know, whose career was pretty much killed off, I think, by that very ill-fated adaptation of The Island of Dr. Morrow. And the HPLHS have also done a uh, dramatisation of it uh, in the Dark Adventure Radio Theatre. They've done a whole bunch of, uh, of them now. I saw on Twitter today somebody had posted a photograph of four boxes of the uh, radio plays that they've done. Yeah, uh, I've totally lost track. I've heard a few and they're really good, but I must get around to collecting those because uh, they're, they're fantastic. There's certainly an awful lot of films that have been inspired, I'd say, by The Colour Out of Space, even if they're not actual adaptations. The the big one for me uh, is The Blob. Looking at it, I mean, The Blob is this meteorite that's coming out, you come down from space, crashes down. All right, in this case, it's much more of a, you know, a physical manifestation, a monster. But it's still this... Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But it's this alien creature which has ridden down on a meteorite and has come to basically, you know, grow and consume a community. At its core, that is the same basic idea. And of course, there was a section of Creepshow, which was an awful lot like that, uh, The Lonesome Death of Geordie Verrill, which actually starred uh, Stephen King in the title role. Which again, you know, meteorite comes crashing down to this small farm. Uh, but in this case, it's kind of like a, a mix of that and William Hope Hodgson's Voice in the Night, with this sort of creeping fungus going around and consuming everything. And yeah, yeah, it's a, a fun, nasty little piece. And... I mean, certainly the Quatermass films, I think, uh, you know, they, they owe an awful lot to Lovecraft in general. But Quatermass 2, again, has got this alien hive mind entity come down on a meteorite. It's almost like a little bits of a Shoggoth that get together. Yeah. Because yeah, yes. they, they, they ultimately, I remember they... Um, yeah, it's growing in yeah. vats in the secret government facility. That's it. And then people being crammed in through the pipes. I also see elements of the colour out of space, perhaps, in, in the first one. Certainly in that you've got this alien taint manifestation that just sort of creeps in and transforms someone. But, you know, instead of just sucking the life out of them, it turns them into a monstrosity. 
we had a conversation a little while back, Paul, didn't we, where uh, I was saying, yeah, is this the origin, the, the whole trope of alien life coming down on a meteorite and, and consuming an area? Yes, that's right. And, and I reminded and, you of War of the Worlds. Yes, of course, which predates this by about you know, 15, 20 years. War of the Worlds, I mean, strikes me as being very different in that respect. Well, Lovecraft was aware of it, right? He oh, yeah, said yeah. He found a quote from him, which nails it, really. What did <laughs> he say? High praise. Yeah. yeah, he referred to War of the Worlds in one of his essays as a minor masterpiece. Well, that's kind of... That's, that's pretty positive. It is, yeah. yeah. Yes, considering what a dim view he had of almost everything. Mm. <laughs> Many of these other works that you referred to, I mean, are they influenced by colour out of space? One could argue they are. You know, there's other things that have used this, this, um, this meteorite idea and things coming from out of space. So I think this idea of the meteorite is very much a vehicle on which you can hang a story because it allows you to bring something weird, something literally alien in to the world. There's a rationale yeah. for it. Um, and I think when it comes to talking about gaming, having a meteorite land or indeed digging one up is such a, a wonderful springboard for so many stories. You can think of anything, any weird story. And when I come up with a, an idea for a scenario, I like to track it back and think, well, how did that come about? How did that start? A meteorite kind of answers everything, really. <laughs> yeah, it's the science fiction equivalent of a wizard did it. Yeah. And speaking of gaming adaptations... And now let's look at what we can steal for gaming. Considering how weird and alien and non-physical colours are, they do seem to get used an awful lot in Call of Cthulhu, don't they? Yeah, they've featured in a few scenarios. We're not going to discuss specific scenarios and give spoilers. From memory, I can think of three, perhaps? So it's not that many in comparison to some of the other monsters out there. Yeah, but considering the kind of monster it is, I mean, that's more than you'd expect. And, yeah, I believe there are more than that, plus there's at least one major Trail of Cthulhu scenario that involves one. When you look at the listing in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook for A Colour Out of Space, the first thing it says is sentient being. I'm not even sure I buy that, to be honest. I'm, I'm not sure I'm on the same page even with that line. Because mm. to me, when I read the story, I don't really get that it's an active sentient agent. It, it just seems more like a source of corruption to me, really. That, that I don't know if it's, if it's mindful of itself and what it's doing. I know at least in one scenario I've played that features a colour, um, it definitely has a list of how it reacts to things, which implies a degree of sentience, mm. rather than just being... In my dim view of it, the seed that lands, grows, and then buggers off again. Which, admittedly, it does in said scenario, but it actually it acts. It does something. It takes actions that are of the de um, that are detrimental against the players. Well, it's yeah. certainly going to be detrimental to anybody in its locality. But I think the whole thing of trying to attribute it some sort of sentience, trying to say, oh, it's a seed, and then it goes through these stages, and then it decides to fly off into the air. I think we're kind of imposing our own understanding of biology onto this thing and trying to comprehend it and, and give it a kind of a life cycle like an earth life cycle which is a typically human thing to do to try to understand it but I don't know what rules it follows really I mean it's there it does stuff and at some point it shoots off up into the sky this is one of the fundamental differences between fiction and gaming. In fiction, you can depict all that, you know, just as a series of events that you don't, as a reader, perhaps even as a writer, have to understand what all these different things mean. 
But certainly, if you're going to present something as a set of stats in a book, you're going to have to quantify it a bit. And mm-hmm. um, no, I'll rephrase that that your audience is going to expect you to quantify it to some extent because the keeper needs to know what to do with these elements. You can't necessarily just turn around in a scenario or a a monster listing in the core book and just say it's an environmental thing that does weird things that are beyond human imagination. Run with it. (laughs) And I guess this is one of the things that sometimes frustrates me about gaming, which is by quantifying the unquantifiable, by uh, reducing these things to sets of stats and cataloguing the behaviour of them, it reduces them to something far more mundane than they feel in the source material. I, mean, I was happier personally with the gods having stats than with the colour out of space having mm. stats. In the Call of Cthulhu monster, it doesn't have physical combat stats. It can't be physically harmed so immediately we are out of that thing where we can just you know blow up a dynamite or punch it or whatever and i think that's one of the things that appeals to me about the color as a creature which is the fact that it can't be fought i think there's two things we can take from this story largely for gaming one is the whole thing of the meteorite and that being a vehicle for weirdness and the second is the color and the effect that it has I think there's the third one as well, which is the actual setting, the farmhouse, the family uh, situation, the fact that it is all contained around this single area. Locations like the Blasted Heath and the Flooded Valley, which we'll come to later, I think these are also important elements that we can borrow a lot from. And I'll say all four of the films pretty much take that setting to to a greater or lesser degree. I mean, it is just a rural farm setting, but... But, but it's more than that, you know, when you say like the blasted heath and the effect it has on the vegetation and so on, it creates a, a setting with its own feel. But the isolated nature of it is also vitally important. Mm. Particularly the one that I, of the scenarios I mentioned, the one that I've played, was a very remote atmosphere. A lot of the opening session, because this, this played out over, I think, two or three sessions when we played it, because I think Paul played it as well. We spent a good, maybe at least half the first session, just describing the various places we went to and the increasing remoteness of where we were going to mm. and that it was so far from anything else. Yeah, yeah. So that, that really hammered it home and it needed that for it to work. That brings up maybe one of the limitations of the colour, which is it's pretty much tied to a location. So unless you're isolated or unless you've got some reason to be there, then the simplest thing to do is just run away. You mean we call the police? <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's sort of the third stage of that. Sorry. This is a bit of an inside joke, and I don't think I've ever explained this on the podcast before. A while back, in a, <laughs> a fit of despondency, I wrote a mini role-playing game and posted it to Google+, Plus, uh, called We Call the Police, which is just... It's a lot of fun. It is. <laughs> it is an examination of dysfunctional horror role-playing, uh, in it, the players, uh, you know, the the GM creates a horror scenario uh, in which you know the players have got characters who are invested in the situation, and the players have got three things that they can do in order. First of all, when faced with the problem, they call the police or anyone else, anything you know that stops them having to deal with it personally. You mean a sane, rational response? Yes. Yeah. Secondly, if that fails, we set fire to it. Again, very rational. Yeah, and if that doesn't work, we run away. Again, self-preservation instinct. What's the problem? Yep. The, the entire premise of the game is to avoid engaging with the game at all. Teflon for the win. Yep. If, if you ever actually get involved with the game, you lose. <laughs> I think the last line was, GM goes home after players complaining, drinks heavily. <laughs> Pretty much. 
you have to be very careful with constructing a scenario around a menace like a colour to make sure that the player characters have got a reason to be there, yeah, you know, and not just run away. Maybe there is something that they're being paid to do in the area or is vital, something that's personally important to them, that there's something in danger that they're invested in, but something that they've got to accomplish that involves them being there. I'm very tempted to write up, uh, write up a colour um, scenario now and do it as a almost homage to the Andromeda strain because that would give the PCs the reason to be there. They are actively studying this thing that has fallen from the sky, devastated mm. an area, and has been taken to a contained facility, or they've built the facility around it where it's landed if they can't transport it, but do a really scientific investigation of what the hell this thing is and what they, happens when it actually becomes more than just the thing that wants to shoot up into the sky. They are the three wise men. There you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it also occurred to me, I mean, when we were talking about this, one thing that would perhaps raise the stakes there is if you played around with the idea of the colour, maybe the colour that we see in the colour out of space is just one variant of this creature or a smaller version or something like that. What happens if there's, you know, that was the kid or you know, a scout or something like that just turning up? What happens when the real one arrives? You, know, you, you get something that's hundreds and hundreds of times larger that ends up somewhere like New York City. Mm. One of the aspects of one of the scenarios that um, that featured the colour was that it grew and finally germinated when it had enough magic points that it had sucked into itself, which in a rural area is um, something that's going to take a long time for it to develop, and that's why it takes such a long time in the story to develop. So I think it's, it's emulating that, that it's t it takes time. But if you give it an energy source, if you feed it enough, or like you say, you drop it in somewhere like New York when it can just suck up all the power it wants, maybe that's when it evolves to the next step of its life cycle. Like butterfly come out of a chrysalis for all we know. It's just some, something different and extra happens when it has the more energy than what it originally Or when you got. talk about what happens when you feed it enough, maybe some scientists decide that that would be a good thing to find out. It also occurs to me, you're talking about the problem with it being isolated and fleeing away from it. And that's quite a common problem with isolation scenarios. You have to build in something that ties the characters to the location or just stops them fleeing. But what if they go to the area, they drink the water, blah, 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 and they're tainted mm. by this <laughs> stuff. Um, so, you know, yes, they do get in their car and drive away and you know, get back to New York and think, oh, we're fine now then maybe they're not. You know, they start vomiting up strange technicolour um, <laughs> pools of liquid. Um, you know, this thing starts to manifest in them. I mean, this is something that is perhaps uniquely a problem with role-playing games. If you set up exactly the same situation as the Color Out of Space as a Call of Cthulhu scenario, I can certainly think of a number of players I've played with who, as soon as stuff like that happens, is, yeah, all right, we run away. And, you know, it, it's because it's so easy in a game just to say those words, we run away. It's, you know, these are characters you're dealing with as a remove, you know, you don't have to deal with the consequences of that. I remember having conversations with my mother many years ago after she saw the Amityville Horror, her saying, oh, yeah, of course, as soon as the first weird thing that ha happened in that house, I'd move out. It's sort of, I was thinking, well, would you really, if there's a minor kind of weird thing or even a couple of fairly weird things that start happening in your house, do you immediately go and start paying the money for a hotel, move out, just abandon the house and stuff like that? I think like it's that? easy no. to think you would, yeah, but, but in reality, 
as you say, you probably wouldn't. Exactly. And, yeah, I, th I think that initial reaction basically comes down to, you know, poor role-playing. That, you know, if your characters are in this isolated farmhouse, their entire livelihood depends on it, they don't have any assets apart from the farm, they don't necessarily have any money at the bank, they're not going to run away from this. This, this is their livelihoods. Without this farm, they're dead. As I said, I think the main thing I take from this story is the meteorite, really, mm. more than the colour, in fact, for myself. I'll try and think of some weird scenario, probably in an isolated location, not necessarily. And then I think I'd build backwards and get to the meteorite, whether it be a colour or a sound or a taint that affects people or whatever. But, um, you know, it, it would have come from the meteorite, I think. And that, that's kind of what I'd get from this. It's interesting you mentioned a sound, though, because one thing that occurred to me was this whole idea of the colour being a colour by analogy. It's not really a colour. This is just the way our senses are perceiving it. Again, maybe there are different manifestations, maybe that appear in different ways. I was thinking about you know, what it would be like in terms of a sound. And then I was reminded you know, that this 14 phenomenon that gets reported all over the world, which is the hum this subsonic hum with no identifiable source that is just detectable in certain parts of the world. It comes and it goes. Yeah, people complain of it, the Bristol hum. And it's, it's been credited with driving people to madness. Just this, this um, you know, it's the fact that it's just on the edge of hearing, you know, subsonic vibrations tend to affect people in very strange ways. I mean, you know, I've certainly read theories, I don't know how credible they are, that subsonic vibrations are responsible for a lot of the hallucinations that people perceive as haunted houses, for example. Maybe that's a manifestation like, you know, a colour that we quite, can't quite perceive. It's, it's, you know, our sense is trying to make sense of, of something, in this case, a sound. That is, you know, just that bit outside human understanding and is something entirely alien. So if we have any listeners in the Bristol region, what I advise is that you check your attic door and fit a padlock on it, because <laughs> you never know when you're going to want that. Or alternatively, if you want to go for the full murder hobo experience, just burn Bristol down. I'm not sure we can put that out on the air, Scott. No, no one would know. <laughs> that's, that's an incitement to terrorism or something. Yeah, yeah sorry, sorry. Burn Dundee down instead. Okay. Before we drift away from the hum, yeah, one, one thing that I, think I just... we drifted already. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I just have to mention is one of the possible explanations for it is that it actually is actually the mating call of certain kinds of fish. So they might be trying to attract one another, mm. and it's gone wrong. Oh, a shock! Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> when does that bloody thing ever go right? I keep warning people. <laughs> another element in this story are the, are the scientists that come in because they're totally useless, <laughs> aren't they? Just? Uh, so, so when you do call in the authorities, what do they do? They send you know this is some strange. Uh, otherworldly phenomenon. We'll send our best men along to have a look at it. It will be men. It's the yeah. 1920s. Top, I don't know why. Top not men. To be sexist, but <laughs> the top three wise men come along in their suits, and you know they start delving and putting stuff in in buckets, and they hold it up, and the bottom falls out because <laughs> it's too hot. And then they go away and they look at it, and they're completely dumbfounded about it. They write a few papers and avoid ever coming back. Yeah, we, we've had one in our possession. It vanished. We got another one. We threw lots of different chemicals at it, and nothing really happened. Oh, well. And it'd be great to have a handout of all the chemical tests they did on it and how they were inconclusive. <laughs> At the end of it, after these days of tests, after everything that you've been through, you're left with one note that just says, it reacts with silicon. <laughs> <laughs> we 
which even then doesn't come up in the rest of the story <laughs> at all. And I mean, like, it, actually, potentially it does because you know the way it seeps into the ground and so on. You know, the, the, the rock's largely silicon-based, so it could be that it's actually reacting with and you know go, going into the ground that way. I thought they, were, they mutually destroyed each other when it was in contact with silicon. So why didn't it, it does um, say that? Yeah. So why didn't it create this massive subsidence under the ground? Mm. Yeah, that's true. And also, if I recall correctly, years later when the surveyor is uh, looking up all this stuff, the three wise men, the, th the three professors, have all died. If the place does get flooded and becomes a reservoir, then the people in the local community are going to be drinking the water and being affected by this stuff. They're going to be getting small doses of it like these three professors did. Yeah. Maybe this small isolated community starts speaking this strange dialect. Mm. There are different ways you could take that. I mean, obviously, the simplest and most mundane way would be leading into some kind of zombie apocalypse. Well, I'm thinking Roanoke here now. Mm. Having been to the Roanoke colony, it's actually the place where I proposed to Tiff. Um, there's... How romantic, Matt. <laughs> well, there, there is indeed a lovely um, Elizabethan garden there. It's, is there? It's full of life. It's... Oh, I just pictured it was like a stunted tree with Roanoke. <laughs> no, no Croton. Croton carved yeah. into the farm. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've been on the fort, the last remaining earthworks of the, of the fort itself so, as well. Yes, hundreds of people disappeared here maybe under mysterious circumstances. There are rumours of cannibalism. It's spooky, it's haunted and so on. Will he marry me? <laughs> Damn right. I thought, you'd, I thought you'd never ask, Scott. <laughs> There was also a wedding that took place there the same day in the same gardens. So. <laughs> Were the bride and groom ever seen again? Yeah, we saw them on the way out. <laughs> Don't know what happened that night. But... <laughs> we can <What's> guess. <laughs> so, sometimes, Matt, when a bride and groom love each other very much, they resort to cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> Where the fuck were we? <laughs> Roanoke. Yeah. But I just, it struck me as that it's somewhere you could disguise the fact that everything seems to have returned back to normal, like the gardens have bloomed, because they've got samples of different plant life from all over the world that they've grown there. But then all of a sudden things start happening again as it finally starts building up more and more power, even though it takes years or centuries for this thing to finally regain some strength and gain a foothold. Well, that sort of touches on one of the ideas that really appeals to me as well, which is that this whole thing of the menace never quite died. We know from, you know, Amy having looked back as, as everyone's fleeing and seeing that not all the colour shot up into space, that it's still there. This is unresolved business. I find that a very engaging theme in a the game in general. And it's something that seems to crop up an awful lot in, in horror fiction, in, you know, all round, but, you know, in horror gaming in particular. Which is this whole idea of, yes, you know, people have tried to deal with this problem before, but, you know, it all ended badly for them all. They could never quite resolve it. And it turns up in fantasy fiction a lot as mm. well, you know. The great evil has been put down, but it shall rise again. Yeah, and it's putting me in mind of Salem's Lot when, uh, in, in the TV version, when David Soule is, is there at the end, I think they're in a church filling up a, a vial of holy water, and it starts to have this weird glow in it, and he says, oh, there's, there's some more still out there. And they know they're going to head to another town to hunt down another vampire. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, see, that was made in the 70s. And um, <laughs> they can flee this, this corruption, but really it's their job to deal with it, and they're going to go around hunting it down because there's more of them out there. Of course, the difference in this case is, what the hell can you do about it? I guess that poses an interesting question for gaming. 
which is, is it fair, is it reasonable to put something like that in a scenario where ultimately there is nothing the player characters can do about it? One complaint I've heard about Call of Cthulhu from some players is that it sort of nothing much happens, there's investigation, and then you get to the final scene and there's a big monster that kills you all. I mean, that's a kind of a stereotypical extreme complaint. Mm. This could be characterised as nothing much happens, there's a lot of investigation, and there's this thing at the end that we couldn't kill and we just had to run away from because you couldn't do anything about it. As, as you've said, the, the, the colour from outer space, as in the story, I'm not sure it's a particularly great foe to put into a story unless, like we've said, you can contain it. Even if you do contain the, the characters in that location, what can they do about it? Yeah, all they can do is get sick and die or uh, go mad and die or just die. Or come up with an inventive way to try and deal with it. If you use the colour in various different scenarios, you have different means per scenario that you can at least either be able to escape the area or make it flee or contain it somehow. I mean, that sort of leads to another one of my personal bugbears with a lot of scenarios. In that case, I mean, let's just say the keeper or the scenario writer comes up with their you know, magic doohickey or whatever to defeat the, the colour in that particular scenario. So you, you either end up, you know, in my experience with badly written scenarios, with one of two things happening. One is either the whole thing becomes a quest to find the magic doohickey and you, you spoon feed bits of information and it's sort of, oh yeah, at the end, yeah, I, I, I've found the, you know, the plus one wand of colour slaying <laughs> and yeah, I shall go along and plunge it into the well and oh, boom, dead, it's dead. Which I find, you know, pretty trite and unsatisfying because you're just following the trail of breadcrumbs to, you know, a plot device and then just using it in the way that you've been told to, which is really tedious. Or the other, even worse option, is that you have your secret method in mind for how to deal with this, and there aren't necessarily enough clues in there, and the players are just sort of, well, we'll, we'll try doing this, no, it doesn't work. Or we'll try doing that, no, it doesn't work. We'll try doing the other, no, it doesn't work. And, you know, why can't these idiots just, you know, work out that you know, in order to do this, you know, they have to connect up the 9-volt battery to this particular line and, and you know, wind it around 37 coils and drop it down into the middle of the well. And personally, I think, you know, the only right way if you're going to, you know, I say the only right way, the right way that, that, that occurs to me if you're going to put a problem like that in, is to be open to inventive solutions by the players. Maybe, yeah. you know, make it involve certain skill roles or whatever, but whatever solution they come up with, accept it creatively. It's difficult to put stuff like that in a written scenario. What would we do this, with this in Polk Thulu? <laughs> Punch it in the face. <laughs> <laughs> with a D6 damage bonus. <laughs> Fly up in an airship and use a death ray. <laughs> Actually, that might work. <laughs> you that? Yes, it would. And then I was thinking, okay, it's Paul Cthulhu. I think I'd have to transpose this to the 1970s to San Francisco Jimi Hendrix concert or something. You know, everybody's seeing these weird colours. The, the, the haze is not purple. Exactly. Ah, <laughs> oh, brum. You end up containing it in a lava lamp at the end. Oh. <laughs> Oh, it's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame. Listeners can't see the look on Matt's face at the moment. <laughs> he looks like he's just had a religious revelation. <laughs> as well as Call of Cthulhu scenarios, of course, the other place that we've encountered, well, at least a reference to the color out of space in gaming, is in the, that board game or you know uh, skirmish miniatures game. 
The Hills Rise Wild from Pagan Publishing, <laughs> which is a fantastic board game. But you have several shacks, don't you? And mm -hmm. each shack has its own little family with their own characteristics. And it's, yeah, like you say, Scott, it's a skirmish board game. You have a little ruler and you measure the distances and they all have different spells and powers. And, and but you've got the, years, the Waitley clan and the Marsh yeah, clan. And, uh, I don't remember many of the specifics apart from the barns, but the one token that uh, <laughs> I just remember laughing then and it still makes me smile. I got me the Necronomicon. Yes. <laughs> uh, and one of them's got a shovel attack, which has a, is a ranged attack. <laughs> Range shovel. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, it's a lot of fun. It is. It's great. And also, I would be remiss if I didn't admit that I did borrow heavily from the colour out of space for at least one scenario I wrote that doesn't actually involve a colour. But... There's there's one scenario that I published up. I probably won't give this away. That if you've played it, you'd probably recognise where a lot of the imagery came from, which very deliberately borrowed an awful lot from the colour out of space. We had quite a lot of references to artists and Pikmin and things like that, given it as a colour. Well, again, when I was thinking of scenario hooks that I might use with this, that was one of the things that occurred to me. Perhaps some artist does actually perceive the colour at some stage. Maybe they're passing through the blasted heath and sees the glow from the old ruined well, and then just ends up trying to recreate that through their own work. Yeah, and, and it starts yeah. driving people mad. They can't yeah. figure out, is it black and blue? Oh, is, it, is it white and gold? Is I it, can't, <laughs> it's doing my head in. Is it a dress? Oh, my God! Yeah. <laughs> uh, if in the attempt to actually recreate the colour, you know, what if they actually recreate the colour with the yeah. capital C or, you know, elements mm. of it? Not only with a capital C, Scott, but with a U. Oh, yeah, yes. Love, oh, of course, mate. the correct way. Yeah. yeah. Yes, love, <laughs> Lovecraft knew how to spell. Yeah. Well, sometimes. <laughs> well, let's not alienate our, our American friends. No, we'll just tell them they're wrong. <laughs> well, Lovecraft was one of yours, my friends. Uh, and he decided to have a U in there. Which, um, maybe he did that to make it seem more alien. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's because he tended to use British spellings throughout he all did. his work. <laughs> the colour from across the pond. <laughs> One of the things we touched on earlier as well was the other locations in the story. I particularly like the Blasted Heath. Mm. I mean, for a start, the name's really evocative. As soon as, you know, in a game, you mention that the locals refer to this place as the Blasted Heath... Expect three witches to turn up and say, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah well, hail to thee, Macbeth, Thane of Glamis. Yeah. Yes. It's just such an evocative name. It spells trouble. It's exactly the kind of place you shouldn't go to. So, yeah, yeah obviously that's where it's all happening. And also, I remember another keeper talking about a scenario which didn't feature a well. They asked what was outside the farmhouse, and he said, oh, you know, there's some fields, there's a cow barn, there's a few cattle, and there's a well, and... And they spend the rest of the game investigating the well. Um, <laughs> he really should have put a colour out of space down it, I think. Mm. So if you do have a well, make sure it's got a colour out of space in it. It's, it's rude not to. Yeah. And of course, the other location that doesn't feature in the main body of the story, but is suddenly comes up at the end, is the, the, the whole idea of the flooded valley. Again, this is an incredibly evocative location. Whether or not you use it in colour out of space type scenario, back in the 1980s, Alan Moore, you know, in the early days of his, his comic writing career, wrote Swamp Thing for a while. It was the thing that sort of made his reputation, uh, particularly in the American comic scene. And he wrote this fantastic storyline in Swamp Thing called American Gothic. It was this road trip around the US, going around dealing with classic horror movie or horror uh, tropes or problems 
problems, but set in modern American settings. It was some of the most inventive imaginative horror I've ever read. And one of the issues revolved around this flooded valley, this former town in there which had been you know, flooded and turned into a reservoir, exactly as per this. Mm. But in this case, the whole thing had become populated by vampires. Because the vampires, you know, being vampires, they don't need to breathe, they can survive just as well underwater. Being underwater, they're protected from the sunlight. So you, you end up with this sort of aquatic breed of vampires which start developing certain Piscean attributes, uh, you know, like spawning like fish and so on. The end result in this was just so creepy. It was wonderful. One of the places we visited in the States, me and Tiff, was the Smoky Mountains. And that there's been a lot of the area around Cherokee where they flooded valleys like that. That there's whole towns which are just now gone, but they're only maybe five or six metres under the um, under the waterline. So occasionally you still might hit something. Mm. Well, like a church steeple? Yeah, maybe. You know, hear a bell ringing like, like Dunwich. <laughs> but... I think this is quite a common thing. We see it in America, we see it in Britain, we see, you know, we hear about the massive projects in China and so on, where whole valleys are, are flooded. What intrigues me, I think I've seen in Britain where some of these places were flooded, but the water levels now dropped and these buildings are now poking out of mm. the water again, these decrepit sort of fallen down old farm buildings and houses and so on are now coming back out again. And that, that I don't know, that's, that's kind of weird, isn't it? It is. Yeah, very creepy location. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, kind of moving away from the classic Call of Cthulhu stuff, I mean, the ghost stories you could set around a location like that would mm. be fantastic. Mm. Oh, yes. You're there boating across this relatively clear reservoir. There's fronds of, of weeds growing up from the bottom, half masking all the buildings down there. You know, going past that church steeple that's sticking up. And, yeah, you can hear just the ringing of a soft bell from down there. And as you look down, there on the streets down below, 10, 15, 20 metres down, you can see people just walking the streets. Or all walking towards the church. Mm. <laughs> you know the neighbourhood's going downhill when the va next door valley is about to be flooded and a new branch of estate agents open up called Marsh & Co. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, Zadok Allen's coming around knocking on your door saying, do you want to be selling your house? And, uh, you know, yes. no, it's going to be flooded. <laughs> oh, yeah, we want to buy it. <laughs> nice property. It's, it's, it's not a reservoir, it's a deep one timeshare. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we're joined by Juan Vu, director of the German film Die Farbe, to discuss that and his other works. Well, we're joined for an interview today by Juan Vu, uh, the director of De Faber, or The Colour Out of Space, which, if you've listened to the rest of the show so far, you'll know is the one adaptation of The Colour Out of Space we actually all like. Uh, so we're delighted to have him on the show. So uh, welcome, Juan. Ah, yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks a lot for you know, praising the film. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's our pleasure. I'm going back to you know, how you got into filmmaking in the first place. We were looking at IMDb earlier. It caught Paul's eye and it caught my eye that uh, you started out doing um, a, a Warhammer 40,000 fan film. Uh, what is it? Demnatus. Yes, and that's a nice coincidence since uh, I just recently, only two days ago, um, talked about that film again and... Uh, um, because I saw a video review on YouTube, and it's a very funny video review of a former 40,000 fan, and he's also praising our film um, and comparing it to the official film Ultramarines by Games Workshop, 
and why our film is so much better, <laughs> even though it's a super micro budget fan film with, um, you know, I shot it with my friends. It's not like they are professional actors and so on. So, yeah, there are a lot of um, weak uh, spots in the film. But I think we, we what we did right, and this is something that probably is like kind of um, something that, that shows in Die Farbe, in the color of space as well, that we get the atmosphere right. I think that's, that's very important for me if I make a film, a film adaptation of something. It's very important for me to get the feeling right. It has to feel like the original source material. And in this case, Donatos has to feel like really the grim darkness of the 41st millennium and a world where life of, of uh, people don't matter at all. And in our case here with Lovecraft, I have to get that mm. yeah. realistic yeah. worldview, that, that, um, yeah, that kind of atmosphere, right? And the whole philosophy behind uh, it in, in, in Lovecraft's writing. Yeah, I can certainly see the parallels there. So, I mean, the fact that you started out with the, you know, a Warhammer 40k film, does that mean that you've got a background in tabletop gaming? Yeah, I was an avid uh, tabletop player, uh, hobbyist um, in my youth. Um, I played Eldar, and uh, yes, it was. I loved the universe. I read the books, um, the Black Library books, um, Dan Abnett, for example, and... Um, yeah, I just enjoyed the game uh, very lot, uh, very much. Oh, nice! Uh, and is, is it gaming as well that got you into Lovecraft, or did you get into Lovecraft far a different way? I think yeah, it's it's connected. Um, the thing is, I was starting to study um, at the University of Media here in Stuttgart, and the film Damnatus wasn't um, completed yet. I, I, I shot the film before I started to study. It was in between. Um, um, graduation from from college and and then starting to study, and I met one guy in my um, at the university who was a 3D artist or an aspiring 3D artist, and he started to to uh, collaborate with me and worked on some of the shots in the film in Damnatus, and he is a big Lovecraft fan. He is Jan Roth, um, and he's one of my best friends now. And uh, yeah, we became friends, and he gave me. Um, a lot of books, and uh, some of them were H.P. Lovecraft, and I started to read, and so I got hooked. And, uh, yeah, and we also started to play um, the role-playing game, Call of Cthulhu, uh, um, Arkham Horror, the, the board game. So initially, it was really gaming first, and I saw the game, and I saw the universe, and I felt, wow, this is interesting. But it took, uh, took some years years later than I, uh, to, to start to read the books, actually, to, to get into the, the whole thing. Is Lovecraft in gaming you know, particularly big in Germany? I, I, I've seen, for example, that, I, I think it's Pegasus, isn't it, you know, published the German language edition of Call of Cthulhu, and that's, you know, the, the books they publish are absolutely beautiful uh, to look at. Does that mean that there, there is you know, quite an active sort of Lovecraftian gaming community and you know, interest in Lovecraft in general in Germany? Yes, I would say definitely. Pegasus and what they are doing is absolutely great. We have a very active role-playing community um, there. It's not big in the sense that there are a lot of people playing the game, but it's a, it's a smallish group, but they are very, very active. And it's also regarded among all the role-playing uh, communities as one of the 
um, yeah, let's say high class um, role playing systems and 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 yeah. You said you, you sort of discovered Lovecraft around the same time, uh, or got into Lovecraft around the same time. And was was the Color Out of Space, you know, one of the first stories that really caught your imagination there, or was that the story that, that sort of spoke to you the most there? Yes, it, um, it was uh, on one on day. On one day, I um, stepped um, down from the train. I get to the office where me and Jan, uh, we both were working there as interns. It's a, it's a small visual effects company. And I just finished reading The Color of Space and I, I talked with him about it, that I absolutely loved that story. And I think it was the best uh, story I read so far. And it still is my favorite story. And uh, at the same time, we were th thinking about contemplating what are we going to do for our um, final thesis work. And so we had the plan, the idea to make an independent film. And uh, yeah, so we toyed around with the, the idea what if we would take this source material and try to make this into a film? And what intrigued us both uh, from the beginning was the main question, how could you depict something in a film that is supposed to have a color that we don't know and, and can't really yeah, explain? And, and so the idea came up very early to make a film in black and white and then add something to it that that could uh, symbolize that color. Yeah, Juan, in our show, we've been looking at a variety of different film adaptations of The Color Out of Space, as well as how one might take The Color Out of Space and use it in gaming. And mm -hmm. um, it occurred to us that this is probably the most filmed of Lovecraft stories. And we just wanted to, uh, you know, get your take on why you thought that was. Yeah, that's amazing as well. Um, I did some research before starting to film our adaptation as well. Um, but I thought that none of the other films, especially those in the old uh, days, really tried to tackle um, the, the Lovecraftian thing. Uh, mm. What I talked about, mm. about the atmospheric uh, thing and also trying to convey, trying to... to um, yeah, to bring to bring onto screen what what Lovecraft is, is about, the whole philosophy um, behind that, and um, I think the story is is absolutely um, outstanding among all other also very outstanding, very very good works of, of H. P. Lovecraft. For me, it's, the, it's my most yeah, it's my favorite story, and I think what's so good is that we have a story here, and I think he himself um, wrote in one of his letters that he thinks that's uh, his best one, um, mm. one of his best works. You have a creature there that is not really evil. And that's something that you don't have that much in one of in, in most of his other stories. In this story, I really feel that this is just, a, just like an animal or, or it's just a different entity there. And we don't know if it really has some kind of uh, logic in it. it. It really feels totally alien to us, not only because it's a color, also because of its behavior and, and how it comes into the story and how it, it yeah, it behaves in the story. And I think um, he did it perfectly in this story in terms of science fiction, horror, um, to pr present us something that is absolutely out of, 
nowhere. We can't understand it. It's so different to us. Is there anything in Defarber that you're particularly proud of? Or is there anything in there that you feel, I wish I'd done that better? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, if I look, the, if I would watch the film now, uh, I would see a lot of things that I would <laughs> change. I mean, uh, we made the film right after um, yeah, studying at, at university and we mm. were young filmmakers and a bit naive with a lot of things and still other things. Yeah, it, it depends on the, on the money you have, on the budget. We, we had a shoestring budget. It almost uh, crashed, and and uh, it's it's a small miracle that we actually have a film here that is kind of working, at least for most of the Lovecraft fans. Um, it's definitely not meant for the mainstream audience, and, and there are a lot of things I would change. I mean, um, for example, um, the language thing. We have uh, actors here who are you can hear them. They are German. They have a German accent. They try to pretend that they are not. And, and that's something that uh, many independent filmmakers in Germany learn uh, when they're making the first movies. It just doesn't work. Um, it, it's very hard to find German actress or actresses who can really um, put out uh, um, flawless English. And so it makes much more sense. What we did now with the, the Dreamlands, with the trailer, that, that's the learning process here to hire um, actresses from Britain, so we don't have that issue anymore. That that you can hear in their voices that that they're, they're, yeah they seem to have an accent and and yeah it doesn't fit to um, the character and takes it out of the film. So that's one of the things um, that I would definitely um, change if I would yeah go back right. and yeah yeah, yeah. and also it's a bit too long. I would cut it down, shorten it a bit. The the, the film is long because. You can better understand how it feels like. How, how would it be if you would be down there in that valley and mm. under the influence of the color and it sucks um, your life energy out of you slowly, slowly from day to day. So that's the idea behind that. It's not that I tend to love to make slow scenes or movies. In this case, it, it yeah, it fits into the story. So I wouldn't mm. make it that much more fast paced. But there are some scenes that could, uh, yeah, need some uh, trimming. No, that's great. You started to talk about the Dreamlands project there. And I know Matt's, uh, this particular interest of, uh, of Matt, you had a couple of questions about this, Matt. Yeah, indeed. Um, I saw the trailer, uh, one of the trailers put out for the Dreamlands project, it must be a, a sometime last year, I believe. And I, I was blown away by it. I mean, the, the scene of the white ship appearing, coming through the uh, the cliffs and floating uh, over the screen, was one one of the best moments from a Lovecraft story that I've seen adapted from page to screen. So I'm I'm really really looking Thanks forward a lot. to when when this comes forward. So yeah, I'll be kind of there on the front row waiting. <laughs> um, I was mainly interested. How, how's the development coming for the project? Yeah, waiting is a good uh, clue uh, word <laughs> in this case. Yeah, yeah. I would love to start and, and, and go out and shoot the film. But the thing is that um, we we are in that process that we have, are becoming professional filmmakers. And so we are talking with uh, producers here, the film industry. Also, we have connections now to the United States, Canada, France, UK also. So, so we have a lot. We met a lot of people last year. That was kind of 
advertising the, the project and get to know the right people face. So, and also to write the screenplay. Two things happened last year. And we now have a almost completed screenplay that we can send out to all the interested producers and then start to meet them and, and try to find the right person to, yeah, to col collaborate with and make this film into a really, yeah, into a real big production that could cost several millions of, of uh, euros. And that's something that is not happening quickly since I am not one of those well-known uh, award-winning uh, young directors. I'm kind of a no-name. I only made here Die Farbe and uh, the fan film Damnatus that, that, that I couldn't show anyone since it's, you know, not really professional. And also Die Farbe is, is, is um, edgy. It's, as told, it's experimental and also not, um, not meant for the mainstream audience. So it's it's really special. It's a special film, and uh, so I don't have the credits that that everyone would say. Okay, this guy is the next big thing here, and we can give him two million dollars or two million euros, and let's see what he will will do uh, with his next feature film. So it's a hard process. Um, you have to convince the people with a very good screenplay and a very strong vision. I mean, our trailer definitely opened us a lot of doors. Uh, we wouldn't be here now if we wouldn't have uh, that trailer and also the successful crowdfunding campaign which is also something that is new and fresh for the film industry to see oh there are some guys out there they have a really good looking project and uh, they have people behind them there's a brand there hp lovecraft there's a fan, ba a fan base that's very good for for any film uh, professional to see that that there's something going on and something with a strong uh, core on base but still there are a lot of things that uh, I have to um, yeah I have to do my, do my homework and what I wanted to say is that the whole process is very tedious and long and it's for me for me it's new since I'm an independent filmmaker I'm used to make the things that I want to make and in a quick way but it's also a risky way so um, yeah it, it makes sense to try to, to follow that path now since the screenplay could not now become much better than it was at the start. Um, we received funding, um, development funding by our regional film um, film funding board, and that totally helped me since I uh, got received money to uh, I could stop to, to to do jobs. I could really focus on writing uh, the last few months and uh, got money to um, to spend on um, a script consultant so that he can can give me feedback, professional feedback, how to make this into a, a good story, into a great story. And th that's really, really uh, a very good process now. And uh, I definitely feel that we um, have arrived with a much better story now. Actually, if I can jump in, Matt, and sort of, uh, sort of uh, cue jump in. You've mentioned the screenplay a couple of times. Is uh, the Dreamlands based on you know any particular Lovecraft Dreamland stories, or is it a sort of mashup or a pastiche? Yeah, I would say it's it's a kind of a mashup. That's one of the initial ideas that I had um, and that led to this project. And that's quite important for me to find an angle to onto something. Like uh, in, in the case of Die Farbe, I would have to have an idea how to to show the alienness of, of that color. 
um, to have an idea how to, to, to show that on screen, which the other films um, before our film um, did not do or did not focus on. And in this case, um, we, we turned around about um, um, adapting one of the stories, but all of them, I mean, I mean, I love a lot of them, but I don't think that you could make a feature film, really two hours or, or 90 minutes feature, feature film from one of those short stories. They're quite short and, and yeah, I don't mm. think that it would really work. And so I abandoned that idea and, and looked on uh, a lot of the stories. But then I came back and, and thought, what if I would um, free myself from the burden to make the adaptation of, let's say, the white ship? Um, and what if I take all those stories or a lot of those stories and, and, and try to, to filter out the, the best elements or some of the elements that I really like or that fit together and, and try to make a new story out of that and use that, that background and that, that whole idea here and, and yeah, universe that H.P. Lovecraft um, created there. And, and to answer your question, yeah, the, the I would say with the, the latest screenplay, we could mention definitely the white ship and it's a lot of uh, cellar face, which is one of my favorite stories in there and also uh, the strange high house in the mist those three stories i would i would I, I, they are not close in no, in no way they are close to the, um, the storyline of the screenplay since it's a new story with new characters and so on but in terms of theme in terms of topic in terms of atmosphere those three stories i would say are, are what yeah what i'm looking for in which case, then, say this. This is definitely something that that excites me. That it's it's becoming such a large, professional, really big budget project. Um, how can people help to either get more information on this or help to fund? I mean, because um, you mentioned that they've been partially uh, funded by crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I hope this this journey will result into a big, uh, professional and and well budgeted movie. But it's still, you know, I don't know if it will happen. It's it's still um, um, a situation where I feel I'm, I'm not in control. And that's the thing that, that you have to get used to if you step onto this this professional path, that there are a lot of other people's, people deciding which movies are made each year and, and how much budget and which actors agree to, to take the part and, and so on. It's It's a very... Big and exhausting process, but yeah, I, I definitely think we have good chances right now. Otherwise, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't uh, sit here and 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 try to to bring this onto this next big step. But it could happen that in the end uh, we would have to say, well, it, it didn't work out. That we don't get enough investors um, or big producers or big uh, actors behind this project. To, to really make it and then we would definitely make the film but in the in the way we already did uh defarber in a very, very small independent uh, way of filmmaking with uh not very well-known actors and everybody working for free again and so it's hard to get crew members it's hard to get uh everyone on board since they you know have to i mean they are experiencing a great film production and uh and it's it's great for young people, but um, 
you don't get the the, the seasoned, very well, very well experienced film um, makers um, into your film crew if you don't film, you can't pay uh, any wages and, mm. and don't, have, don't have anything to offer. I mean, they have families; they have to, yeah, have to pay the rent and so on. And I can totally understand that. Um, that's the thing: you don't get the the the, the yeah the the most experienced artists into your project. So. And it's risky because anything can happen. There can be an accident, something. We also experienced some some uh, yeah uh, drawbacks while shooting the uh, father, and had to 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 look for look for additional money to to compensate and so on. And so that's why we still have that uh, crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo, and it's still open. You can still contribute if you think this is a great project. You can yeah give us ten euro or fifty or anything. Uh, you, you have to, you can spend on this, and uh, I can guarantee that we are going to make this film. We, we have a great script; it's a better script now. If we make a f film with only the crowdfunding money and in the no-budget, uh, independent, uh, guerrilla-style filmmaking, um, then definitely I would have to change the screenplay in, in some ways that we can uh, can make that. But um, that's the thing. I, I come from that spot. I, I'm used to having almost no money and uh having to try to having to try yeah um to find ways how to uh tell a big story nonetheless and i think we showed that twice uh, with damnatus uh even though it's a fan film production you can see that there's a strong vision there and that we in some scenes we we, we managed to to really tell this huge warhammer 40,000 um universe and and get the feeling right and, and so on and in, in Die Farbe it's a big step forward uh, it's much more professional production it also has a bit more budget and professional actors in it and you can see that, that there's a huge um, progress there in, in the ways in the way I'm making films and, and learning how to, to make films and I can guarantee that with the Dreamlands we have much more budget now in terms of the, the crowdfunding campaign there and, and the crowd investing campaign and um with that money, I can still guarantee that I can make a, a really good movie. And speaking of which, I mean, you've got a website up at the moment that that's, you know, gives information on the film and that has got links to the crowdfunding uh, pages on Indiegogo, haven't you? Uh, that's uh, the-dreamlands.com? Yes, is mm -hmm. that right? So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But yeah, it, you know, if if uh, anyone's listening to this and wants to leap straight on there, just just type that URL in, and you can see what all this is about. And you, if I remember correctly, you've got the trailer on that site as well, uh, which mm -hmm. which has got six minutes of footage and is absolutely bloody marvelous. <laughs> Obviously, you know, the Dreamlands is consuming uh, your your attention at the moment. I mean, have you have you got any other ambitions after that? I mean, do you see yourself carrying on in Lovecraftian filmmaking after this, or you know, are you going to branch out into other areas? Well, since we started um, this interview with um, the natives, um, I would still say that's something that I really would love to go back to uh, to the Warhammer mm. Forty Thousand universe. I think it's still missing a big, you know, Hollywood-style Warhammer 40,000 adaptation. And so one of my personal dreams would really be to become a well-known director or anything like that, that, that who has the standing to get such a big-budget science fiction epic movie that is a 
a warmer 40,000 adaptation. I would really love to make that. Oh, but, well, yeah, okay. it's, it's well, a very long journey. <laughs> and, and we'd love to see you do it. But in the meantime, we're also very, very happy to see you making Lovecraftian films. Uh, well, well, thank you very much for your time, and thank you very much for giving us the background on, on everything. I, that's, that's been... Uh, yeah, that, that, that's been absolutely fantastic. We must also thank Frank Delventhal, uh for putting us in touch. Uh, Frank's a you know a great supporter of the good friends of Jackson Lies, very you know, very active on social media with us, and, and he made the introductions here. So so thank you, Frank. And thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much, Juan. And uh, yes, we, we we really hope the Dreamlands film comes together, and can't wait to see it. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. As we've mentioned on previous episodes, the generosity of our backers on Patreon pays for new equipment, it pays for our hosting costs, it pays for the bandwidth costs for the episodes. Really, we couldn't afford to do this anywhere near as, as, well, technically efficiently as we do without your help. You avoided the word professionally there quite well. I I also avoided the word competently. Uh, but no, seriously, we are incredibly grateful to all of you, and we have a few new people to be grateful to. Hey, hey. I'd like to extend a thanks to Anthony Brown for his sponsorship. Yes, thank you very much, Anthony. Indeed, thank you very much, Anthony. And also many thanks to another um, backer we've had recently from Matthew Peterson. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. And we have a special thanks to give out to Adam Alexander, who has upped his pledge to dizzying levels we have not seen on the podcast before. Uh, uh, we, we, we hope that this doesn't just mean that your, your mouse slipped while you were down here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if, that's, if you meant to pledge at that level, we are phenomenally grateful to you. And we probably need to think of a new pledge level to reward you for that. Yeah, we, we put our heads together a little to try and think of some kind of reward that we can offer for people as good as yourself. But we're struggling. So if any of the listeners can think of a reward for people who pledge beyond $5, then um, fire away. The only thing I'd uh, request is no hip-hop. That's the <laughs> only thing I would request. <laughs> I think we're all with you on that one. <laughs> I think everyone who listened to <laughs> listened to our last attempt is probably well ahead of us on that. And finally, I don't think we've ever found quite so much gaming material to talk about with one of Lovecraft stories before. Considering that this isn't a monster you can fight or anything, it's really rich pickings. I think it's very inspirational. I think that explains why there's been so many film adaptations of it. Mm. Yeah, that, that is definitely the silver lining I found in it, that it's it has so much you can take from it, that it, it is a nice springboard for you to create your own stuff from. It's rich pickings for gaming. If you want to come up with a horror one-shot or a horror game, read The Colour Out of Space and probably going to give you something to get started on. Even if you don't pick specific influences out of it or specific elements, the overall atmosphere of it and the location and so on will probably seep into you quite insidiously and taint what you write. That was like three or four plugs all in one go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's about all the colours we have time for this week. So 
It's cerulean from me. It's puce from me. And it's purple from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm.